Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast, the only top-rated show committed to helping you grow your business, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Let's get into the show. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. If you're new to the show, these midweek mashup episodes are some of our favorites here because we get to take past episodes, find one topic, and then go back into our archives of amazing guests we've interviewed and pull certain clips that are all about that one topic. So today, we're talking about how to be a best-selling author. Now, we have three amazing people that we're featuring on this episode. First of all, Max Lugavere. Max is a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, he talks a lot about, I think his first book that was a bestseller was Genius Foods. And he talks a lot about nutrition and health and uh, a different approach to it and what all the gurus are getting wrong. And he comes from it from a very researched perspective. He does a lot of research on on the top papers and different high-level research that has come out over the years rather than just like looking at the next guru who comes online. And so everything that he talks about is steeped in decades and decades of research. And so I've found his nutrition advice to be super helpful and applicable in my life. I want to bring him on the show to talk about nutrition. And then I really just couldn't fight the urge to talk to him about how to create a best-selling book because when he started his first, when he wrote his first book, he didn't have an existing audience. So he went from a nobody to a bestseller in New York Times. And so I was very curious about that. So we talked with Max on this episode. Uh, then we talked with Mark Manson. Mark Manson is the author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, as well as Everything is Fucked. If you combine book sales for both of those, I believe he's coming close to 10 million copies of his books sold worldwide in dozens of different languages. Um, and uh, if you've ever been in an, uh, in an airport, you've probably seen a copy of his book sitting in one of the, one of the bookstores. Uh, and he's one of the best-selling authors and of like our modern times. And the, his books themselves, to me, are two of my favorite books that I've ever read. They're more modern day philosophy books than anything else. And so uh, I, I recommend them to almost anybody that I know that's looking for something very similar to that. So Mark Manson's also who we feature. And then the last one would be Jack Canfield. Jack is the co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul and the co-founder of the Chicken Soup franchise. Between all of their books, they have sold over 100 million copies worldwide, 100 million copies of Chicken Soup for the Soul and all of the series. They have dozens of different series that branched off of Chicken Soup for the Soul, and they've sold those copies uh, all over the world. So three people who know a lot about how to write a best-selling book. So we figured we'd bring them all together in one episode. So please, without further ado, enjoy How to Be a Best-Selling Author with Max Lugavere, Mark Manson, and Jack Canfield. Now let's kind of move into the vehicle conversation because this one's really big. A lot of people, what a lot of people don't understand about books, and I've never written a published book myself, so I'm just going off of all my friends who have. What a lot of people don't understand is that deal with the publisher does not guarantee a successful book. So can you talk about how that process went for you and how you help the publisher sell more copies of your book and yeah. make success? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's true. Publishers, the book market these days is one such in that publishers have to basically take a bunch of different risks. And one out of every, I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm not a publisher, but one out of every 50 books, I'm sure, um, stick and become that perennial bestseller, right? So they've got to make a bunch of different investments, keep a a diversified portfolio in authors. And then one is going to end up becoming like the home run. So my book was one of those where all the signs were there that it could be a book that sold a few copies. You know, I was I didn't have a large Instagram following at all. So if you're wondering whether or not you need to be an influencer 
on, on social media. You don't. I didn't have a, an Instagram following of any um, significance. But at the time, I was doing TV. So I was on the Dr. Oz show pretty regularly at that point. And I was doing another show called The Doctors with some regularity. And so they also, I think, saw in me that I was the perfect storyteller for this topic. You know, I was the mm. perfect journeyman to bring audiences along to learn about how nutrition can help improve the way that your brain works and to help procure uh, long-term brain health. So I was the right person for the job. They felt that. And so they, they gave me, they took a shot. But at the end of the day, because it's a numbers game for these publishers, they've got, they're releasing at any given month, a number of different books. And so for you to assume that they're going to come out and like all guns blazing, put all of their efforts behind your book when they've got all these other books that they've invested just as much money into, that's not going to be the case. So I realized that this was like a once in a lifetime, literally a once in a lifetime shot. You know, you release your first book once. And if it doesn't go well, there's probably no uh, second book. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, like you would, you would think that your chances are definitely diminished, right? If it doesn't go well, you're probably not going to write a second book. That being said, it's rare. It's very rare that first time authors become bestsellers. But yeah, I mean, I did realize that I thought that if there was any sanity in the universe, that this book was going to do well, because I really put my, you know, I put blood, sweat and tears into it. It was motivated by something very pure. For example, I know that many people write books these days to kind of serve as like funnels to their business. I did not do that. I wrote my book with the sole intention of putting out the best possible information into the world that I could and doing it in a compelling way. So there was no ulterior motive there. So I knew that I, I knew that I had labored over the book and that my intentions were pure, that it was a good book, and that there was no other book on the topic in the same style as my book available to people. And that by it becoming a bestseller, it could do a world of good for people's health all around the world. And so I believed in it so strongly and I, I worked on it so hard and night and day that the idea of investing money into the project, but ultimately myself, was a no-brainer. You know, I had to because it was this once-in-a-lifetime shot, and I would have regretted not doing so. Yes. When you say I, I invested it into the book slash myself, what exactly were the methods? What like what did you invest? Did you invest into the actual marketing or did you invest into coaching to understand how to sell a book? Or or what, what exactly did do you mean when you say that? Yeah, no coaching, no marketing. So all of the marketing for the book was done by me personally. And there were no marketing tricks. I didn't buy copies of my own book or anything like that. All I did was I invested in a PR strategy to help me manage the PR, both the PR, the incoming PR requests. But then also I knew that I had a lot of relationships in the publishing world, like magazine publishing, as well as the TV world. So I hired a PR company to basically help me organize and sift through all of that stuff while also bringing you know, any other potential opportunities that they could bring to the table. So that's just like purely PR. You know, that's distinct from marketing. On the marketing side, I did invest money into the editing of a book trailer. Although I can't tell you what the ROI was on that. I have no idea how that may or may not have converted to book sales. But I did hire a friend of mine who I've worked with in the past who's an editor to help me put together a trailer for my book, which you can find on YouTube. But that's pretty much it. No big tricks, no smoke and mirrors, nothing like that. At what point after your release did you realize that you had a potential bestseller on your hands or was it already a bestseller? Well, I saw it rise up the Amazon ranks really rapidly that week. Um, what, what, what year was this, by the way? This was March 2018. So this okay. was... Yeah. Very recent. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was rising up the Amazon ranks really, really rapidly. And it hit, I think, the highest it ever reached was number four out of all books, which at the time, I mean, the, the top five, I feel like it was Jordan Peterson's book. 12 Rules for Life. 12 Rules for Life. Yeah. It was not leaving the <laughs> top five position. It was just right. there. It was like perennially up there. And I was really excited to have surpassed his book for a window. And um, no kidding. Yeah. And so that was that was like the first week. And um, that week, it was the top selling... Or one of the top selling advice books, miscellaneous how-to or advice books in the US. So it ended up making the New York Times list so on the first week. So from that, a huge congrats on that, by the way. From there, was there a plan that you put into place to continue bolstering that brand? For a second book, like what, what did you did you start putting a ton of effort into social media and Instagram and all the other things that you have going on now at that point, or was that a little bit before with some of the PR that you were doing? The Instagram kind of started a little bit before the launch of the book. I kind of had switched my Instagram philosophy as to how I approached that medium, and my Instagram account started growing sometime in 2017. And so I think when my book came out, I had like 70 to 80,000 followers already, maybe, maybe fewer than that. But yeah, I mean, I knew that that was a big part of the puzzle as well, because that's where the young people were hanging out in terms yeah. of social networks. And I knew that those are the types of people that I wanted to be reaching. And so I knew that I had to invest energy into Instagram. And when it came to figuring out what strategy was going to work, I basically tried everything. I was, I was not afraid to experiment and uh, to fail and to have a post you know, now and then that had no engagement because tinkering is ultimately what led to me figuring out the format that worked and ended up, that's the format that I've stuck with. And it's built me a huge following at this point. And then sometime after that, I launched my podcast, which is called The Genius Life. I think a few months after I launched Genius Foods. And that was, you know, just so the reason why I launched the podcast is just to continue having conversations with people that I could learn from PhDs, MDs, whoever can basically add to my knowledge base so that I can then explore further and then communicate those findings to my audience. Well, what's been a positive side effect of the podcast that you weren't expecting when you started it? Well, I I had no idea that it was that it was going to be successful. I mean, when I first started, I didn't think that I was a good interviewer. I hear that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think that I was that I was very good and there were certainly things that I would do that drove me crazy that, you know, when listening back to my early interviews, I would go back and I would edit out, you know, like a lot of ums. Yeah. And um yeah, like just kind of meandering dead spaces questions, and dead spaces, right. questions that were like that took too long to get to the actual question. So, I, you know, the fact that it's that that it has reached the audience that it has to me is amazing. Like people come up to me and they tell me that they're a fan of the podcast, and part of me internally, I'm like, really? That's <laughs> that's that's so cool. But I totally, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But over time, I've gotten better, and part of the reason why I've I've kept up with it is because I'm enjoying the process of becoming a better interview and getting better at that skill. So yeah, I will admit that it has gotten better over time. And the only reason that it's gotten better is because I've stuck with it. Yeah, it's so true. And uh, I mean, there's so so many things there to take away from that. But ultimately, it's just consistency, sticking with things and being willing to suck. I think yeah. people just aren't willing to suck, man. Like they hear your podcast 74 episodes in like it is, right? But they, they don't go back to episode number one and hear like maybe awkward stumbling. But even you would be starting at a huge advantage because you've been on media and doing PR and creating content, writing books and all this stuff. And people, I just think people just aren't willing to suck at something 
something. They're afraid of the embarrassment or they're afraid of other people's judgment or something like that. But ultimately, you have to just come to terms with the fact that if you're just starting out in something, even though you think you're probably better than you really are, like you are going to suck and it's okay. Just keep doing it. Because yeah. eventually you're going to get better. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I used to go back and I used to edit all of my earliest episodes. Like the first dozen or so of my episodes I would listen to and I would edit out all the ums and all the likes and everything mm-hmm. like that. And if there was an inelegant question being asked, I would try you know, all kinds of audacity acrobatics to like try to smooth out that question. But now... I'm at a point where, you know, sometimes, of course, I'll still ask a question that doesn't come out as elegantly as I would have hoped. But now I leave it in. I barely do any editing because I'm like, you know what? (laughs) Sometimes I'm not as articulate as I want to be. Sometimes I have on days, I have off days, you know. I just want to hear what that journey was like, man, because very few people have just meteoric rises with a singular output. Like one piece of content that you put out that just hit a like the perfect person that you were trying to reach and spread like wildfire, and now has been on the the top chart, the uh, New York Times bestseller list for like two hundred weeks in a row or something like that, and has sold over you know ten million copies or something now. And it's just like that 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 kind of a that kind of a story is crazy. So I'd, I'd love to hear you just kind of like you know it, you know thirty thousand foot view give us a, give us an idea of where the idea came from and then at what point you realized that you had something yeah so if you back up to like 2014 2013 2014 my blog starts really taking off and and one of the things that was really taking off was kind of actually just what we were we were just talking about is I started writing now that I, I had stepped out from the relationship umbrella I felt more free to write about these other topics. And one of them was pointing out kind of the narcissistic tendencies of typical self-help or self-improvement. And so I'd write posts called, you know, you are not special, or, you know, it's why you're wrong about everything or or things like that, or in defense of being average, stuff like that. And they would just take off and they'd be, they get, they go viral and they get shared everywhere. And, And I discovered that there was a very wide audience of people kind of with my background and my age and my generation who, who had a similar feeling of like everything I grew up being told was was good is kind of bullshit and, or didn't work or it didn't really turn out the way I, I expected it to. And so there's kind of like a, uh, an abiding cynicism that I was tapping into. And I was experiencing a lot of this in my own life as well. You know, it's, it's, I, built an, I built an online business. I'd been traveling all around the world. I had been you know, doing like living kind of the Instagram life, you know, going to all the parties and events and doing selfies on the beach and all this stuff and having all these crazy experiences. But it was very, uh, it was very unfulfilling. And it all felt after a few years, it all felt kind of meaningless and pointless. And so I had a little bit of, I guess, like a mini midlife crisis in, in my late 20s, kind of realizing like, wow, everything I've been working towards like my entire 20s is actually like pretty superficial and, and self-absorbed. And uh, you know, what do I actually care about? Like if I died tomorrow, would I be remembered for anything? Or what would I want to be remembered for? I started asking myself a lot of these like very difficult questions. And I guess the book Subtle Art was like very much an answer to those questions for myself. And I think that process, that process of like, what are my values? What is actually worth caring about? You know, I know just making a lot of money or buying a big fancy house, like these are not 
goals that are, are worth getting my, you know, that's what our parents spent their lives trying to get. And we saw how that turned out. So it's like, what are we going to pursue instead? You know, I think a lot of people of my generation, like we're going through these same questions and issues at the same time. And so I, I think the book just hit a nerve. It was, it was kind of the right questions and the right, the right title for the right, for the right demographic at the right time. Yeah. Um, and it was very fortunate in that. Yeah. So is, was there a spike, like a big spike that you remember happening that, or, or was it just kind of steady growth the whole time as soon as the book launched or? You know, so it was funny when it came out, there was a spike when it came out. So it debuted on the New York times list, I think like number six. And, uh, that was at the time, like that was the whole goal. It's like, all right, just get on the times list. And then, you know, for the rest of my life, I can be a New York times bestseller. I never really expected much more than that. And it stayed on the times list for a few weeks. And then it kind of, it, dropped off and kind of trickled, you know, sales were decent, but not crazy. And then it really started to come back like two or three months later. And it was interesting. It was the audiobook that took off first. The audio, the audiobook, for whatever reason, Amazon's algorithm on Audible just like started recommending it to everybody. Yeah. And and then once it took off, the the hardcover started taking off. But I'll say this, like people ask me this a lot, you know, it's what what does it feel like you know, you asked it earlier, like, what, what does that meteoric rise feel like? What, what is it like being caught up in that? And I'll say that it's very strange as an author, because I think, you know, if you're like a musician who just hits it big, you're playing in arenas to like 30,000 screaming people singing your songs with you. You know, uh, if you're a movie star that just hits it big, like you're getting stopped on the street every single day by fans. If you're an author, it hits it big nothing changes in your life. Like, <laughs> like absolutely nothing. Like nobody knows who, like what you look like, who you are. You know, it's like the only thing that changes is like a nice fat royalty check shows up every six months, uh, yeah. which is great. But like your day-to-day life, like really doesn't shift. And then I think too, you know, for authors, it does happen so gradually that it doesn't really, there's not really any single like, oh shit moment. You know, it's like, from end of 2016 through 2018, book sales increased probably like three or four percent a month. Wow. Which, when you compound that over like 25 months or whatever, you know, you end up getting just this massive surge of sales. But it, it's just it never because it takes two years that like that whole upward trajectory it takes two years. There's never like a single moment of like, oh my god, I made it. It's just this weird thing that's always going on in the background of your life. Yeah, sure. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate taking a second to explain that. Um, we're coming up on time here, man. And usually this is the part of the conversation where I talk a little bit more about relationships and networking. But I, I, I got to apologize to my audience because I got to be selfish here and uh, spend the last couple minutes talking about something that I've uh, wanted to talk with you about for, for since I read both your, both your books. And it's going to be pretty deep here for the last 10 minutes or so um, because I want to ask you this question. Why are we here, Mark? What's what's the purpose? <laughs> what, what's the purpose? What's the meaning of life, man? Uh, that, that, that's essentially what you're writing about, and I find your perspective on it to to be to be pretty fascinating. And so I kind of just want to have this conversation with you. I mean, this this is where I just say 42 and hang up, right? <laughs> um, you know, it, it's I, I so this actually segues in nicely with talking about the the meteoric success of, of subtle art because something interesting happened after the success of Subart, which was, it was something I completely did not expect. I 
being like a big best-selling author, like that had been a dream of mine pretty much my entire adult life. And once the blog started to do well and I was making a living off of it, it kind of became like my life goal of like, you know, one day I want to be a best-selling author. I want to be on the New York Times list, you know, want to like go do a book signing somewhere, have a bunch of people show up. And I kind of had this like laundry list of life goals, you know, sub-life goals. My, you know, it's like one day I want to sell a million copies and I want to be on TV and I want to like do this. And it, it was always, you know, one of those things in the back of my head of like, okay, over the next 20 to 30 years, I will like slowly check off each of these off my like life dream list. And when Subtle Art took off like that, I knocked out all of those in like three months. And so I found myself, you know, in my head, I, I've got this like list of goals that I'm going to be working my entire adult life towards. And they were like, I knocked them all out in three months. And so I was actually like completely lost afterwards. I actually became depressed for about six months mm. simply because I had no idea what to do next. It's like, how do you ever top this? Like, yeah. whatever, what, like everything I've dreamt about for the last 10 or 12 years just happened. And I'm still the smelly, farting idiot getting up, you know, struggling to get out of bed every morning. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh crap, like, what do I do now? And so a lot of what informed the second book was, was kind of this obsession about like, what is meaningful? Like what is doing something meaningful and how do you, how do you know if it's meaningful? I definitely am an existentialist in that I don't think there's any inherent meaning to life. I think it's something that we create and I think it's incumbent on us. Like we all have a responsibility to create it. And I think meaning can be created in, in multiple ways, but ultimately anything that is meaningful, what it comes down to is some sort of service of others. And whether that's through simply loving somebody, helping somebody, creating something that enriches the lives of somebody, life of somebody, anything that is that humans tend to experience as meaningful and important in the world, we experience it as meaningful and important because it has some sort of service to other people. And so it's one of those things where like you spend like the first 30 years of your life thinking like you're a rebel and a badass. And then you like mature enough to realize that all the cheesy cliches are true. Like mm. the whole point of this is to simply be good to others, to love others. And to ho hopefully along the way, be loved yourself. And, um, it, that's something that, you know, 25 year old Mark would have like rolled his eyes and been like lame, but you know, it's 35 year old Mark is, is like, okay, yeah, this is why all these movies are made about this. I get it. <laughs> this episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, 
a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Okay, so now Chicken Soup for the Soul launches and you guys just go into sales mode. The coolest thing about this is that the level of persistence that you guys had was just through the roof because it took you a long time to compile the stories, to have a partnership, to get a publisher to say yes to the book. Mm-hmm. And then you start selling copies at a decent rate, but it took you 14 months to get on the bestseller 14 months to bestseller list. Yeah, the book came on July and it was the following late September to Washington Post, we hit 15. Yeah. And then maybe by... November, we hit number 15 on the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And it climbed up like one number every week until mm-hmm. it got to the top. Then it stayed there for three years. Three years. Is that some sort of a record? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I mean, I know that in terms of how long it took, I'm not sure. I know that Tim Ferriss was on the list longer than we were at the top. Uh, for um, so, four-hour work week? Yeah, okay. he stayed there for a long time. Okay. The longest ever was uh, Scott Peck, who was on for 12 years in a row. 12 600 years. and some weeks. Wow. But here's the thing. We asked him... Because remember, ask the people that have done what you want to do. So we called John Gray and Barbara DeAngelis and Ken Blanchard and Scott Peck, who'd all been on the best list for a long time. And what Scott said is you got to do at least one radio interview every day. He said the first year, do three. He said the best ones are hour longs, like what we're doing here, Mm because you can delve deep. But the drive time stuff in the morning when you get the most listeners is usually on your five minutes, you know, and you got to have your gig done. For us, it was what two stories we can tell that really blow people away, you know. So we did that for three a day, three a day. And quite often there's this thing called satellite tours where you're at a studio or you're on your phone and you have someone monitoring the phone. And the next thing your phone rings, hi, Jack, you're going to be on in Dallas in five minutes with so-and-so. And And then you get off. And then two minutes later, now you're going to be on Arizona, wake up, whatever. And either you're doing it in a studio with cameras or Mm -hmm. you're doing it on a radio. And we used to get up at three in the morning to do shows starting on the East Coast at six. And then you wouldn't be done until maybe 9.30 or 10 here because you're going all the way across the country for that wow. And you might do 20 radio shows in one wow. morning. That is quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you found that the podcasting thing is a little bit easier? You can dial in remotely and... Podcasting is easier and you can do it ahead of time and you can yeah. record stuff like right, we're right. and so forth. So it's much easier. And I think you know, what we also learned is book signings. Like you get much more reach with podcasts and webinars and things like that than we traveling all around the world doing book doing signings. Book tours yeah. and everything. Yeah, now it's more like virtual book tours. Virtual right? book okay. tours, yeah. Yeah, so Chicken Soup for the Soul comes out. You guys are crushing it and you hit the best-selling list. After a while, I was reading some stuff before I prepping for the interview and you said that you started getting sick of hearing the story of the guy with no leg that climbs Mount Everest. And so at this point, this is where the Canfield training group kind of came out of the woodworks. Is that right? Or is that kind of what happened was we were, I think, I don't know, 12, 15 years into the whole thing. And um, there was 
started to get a little jaded. The stories that should have inspired me weren't. Yeah, yeah. Like we had a, a phrase called MFG stories, messages from the grave. Okay. So my mom died. She loved bluebirds. Yesterday, a bluebird landed on my windowsill. I knew it was my mom kind of thing. Yeah. And it probably was, yeah. but it's like, eh, not that was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, I just started to feel like this isn't doing it for me anymore. And, right. and I think one of the things you have to do in life is realize that sometimes what your passion is changes. Mm-hmm. You know, you've done whatever you were meant to do or learn whatever you're meant to learn from it. And not, you have to explore that because sometimes it's just, you burned out and you need right. a vacation. But my CEO at the time, our COO at the time, who's now our CEO in this company said, you know, I think I can sell this company if you want to sell it. And I said, well, we'd have to get this. I didn't really want to, mm-hmm. but I said, if you can get this much money, I'll consider it. And he went and did it. So then it was called like, well, okay. <laughs> and so it allowed Mark and I to kind of just kick back for a year and decide what we wanted to do next. Okay. And out of that came starting to do more seminars and then the success principles book that I wrote. There you go. Yeah. So this book, I mean, chicken soup for the soul is, is a must have like on your library shelf for all the inspiring stories. Yeah. The whole series. I mean, there's, there's over 200 books in the series. Yeah. Which is crazy. And if you're a woman, you should read chicken soup for the woman's soul. If you're African American, yeah. you should read chicken soup for the American soul. Yeah. We had nine teenage soul books. Nine teenage books. Nine teenage soul oh. books, you know, and like teenage soul one, two, three, then teenage on the tough stuff, you know, boyfriends, drugs, abusive parents, wow. rape, all that kind of stuff. And so there's, Probably everyone, there's probably 10 books that everyone should read because of your interest. Like mm-hmm. we did Chickens yeah. for the Baseball Fan Soul with Tommy Lasorda, the oh, Dodgers really? coach, you know. Wow. But the first book is probably the most powerful book because okay. that took 20 years to collect those stories and the rest of them a year or two. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So you come from that and then you go into the success principles. So before it was like compiling stories that you were used to telling in all these different, mm-hmm. you know, scenarios. And now you're going into like a, purely content driven right. piece of work is really what it is. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody earlier and they, they were asking me about because I was telling them I was prepping for the interview. I was like, yeah, as author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, the Success Principles. And they're like, oh yeah, I've heard about that one. Is that a pretty good one? And I was like, bro, you have to read it. Like it's like a yeah, think and grow rich. It's like a how to win friends and influence people. Right. And then the success principles. Right. Like you gotta, it's one of the books that you do. So talk to me about the difference between your experience putting together Chicken Soup for the Soul versus putting together the success principles. Well, Chicken Soup for the Soul was there were stories that other people had either said, written, seen in a, you know, interview somewhere mm-hmm. or whatever. Other keynote speakers had them and I can I have permission to use that story? And they said, yes, kind of thing. With the success principles, I had to sit down. And this is the thing I'll just tell you as a little prologue. I wanted to write a book about success because everyone was asking me how did I become so successful with all this success. And I, didn't want to, I wanted to stop talking about it. So I said, mm-hmm. I'm going to write the book that says everything I know about yeah. it. And then I'm done. And then when they ask me, I say, go buy my book. And then I'm going to go on to spiritual things or something. You know? Well, I learned you cannot write a book and then not spend the next 10 years talking about it because that's what everyone wants you to yeah. come talk about. But that's okay. So I, I sat in bed one morning. I said, okay, how have I been successful? And I, I listed 114 principles. And then I, my wife looked at it and said, you can't do a book with 114 principles. It's way too many. And I thought each one was going to be three mm-hmm. pages. So I maybe I can do 100 and be 300 page book. Well, yeah. it took 10, 15 pages sometime to do a principle. I combined some, I dropped some out. Yeah, yeah. Someday I'm going to write a book called The Lost Principles, kind of like the mm. Lost Sea yeah, Scrolls, yeah. you know, yeah. the Bible. What you don't know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the missing principles. But anyway, I wrote what I teach. You know, first I've been teaching it for years. So I just kind of wrote what I taught. And mm. I think it's a great thing. If you can go teach it for a while, it clarifies it when people ask you questions and so forth. And then I did illustrate almost every principle with a story. Mm. Someone who had lived that principle 
And that because of it, something magical happened. Yeah. And so I tell people, even if you're writing a how-to book, put stories in there. It's the combination of the inspiration and the information. Mm-hmm. And then the person has to provide the perspiration, you know, to make it happen. But mm-hmm. if they're not inspired, that someone else actually did it. Mm-hmm. And often people don't realize how important it is. Now, when it's we, too abstract. Yeah. Like it's up here in the clouds. And, and here's another thing I learned. But the first book, almost all my stories were about people you would know, like Steve Jobs or, you know, Bill Gates or whatever. So people go, wow, these guys are successful. That principle must really work. Some people didn't have that response. Some people, well, Bill Gates is like a, from another planet. That works for them. It works yeah. for them. Exactly. So the second book, when we did the 10th anniversary revised edition, almost... I'd say 85% of the stories are people who read the first book and applied the principles and that worked for them. A plumber, a teacher, a guy that was a real estate agent, whatever. And so people go, oh, that's much more relatable to Yeah, right. Totally. Of the success principles that you have in the book, which one means the most to you? So not necessarily like, not necessarily your favorite, or I'm not making you pick one that say like, that's the only one you should do. But in your life, which one do you think you would attribute the most of your success to? It's a good question. I'm going to answer with three because I think without them, it's just not possible. One okay. would be the take 100% responsibility. Mm-hmm. And this whole model I have of E plus R equals O of M plus response equals outcome. And if you don't get the outcomes you want, quit blaming the event, change the response. Mm-hmm. You know, complaining is a sign of weakness. Solution is a sign of wisdom. You know, mm-hmm. so always a little, how can I change the outcome? I'm responsible. What did I do there? What can I do differently? The second one would be, you know, go within, which is the meditation part. Because I've gotten every great breakthrough, like creating the Transformational Leadership Council, which is we'll talk about with networking because it's my main network. That came from a meditation to do, the title of Chicken Soup, the idea to write the success principles, et cetera. And the third one is action, is you, you've got to act. You have to respond to the feedback from the action because not all actions work. Most people are defensive to feedback and then persevere. So those are all aspects of action. Hmm. The take responsibility one is probably the biggest in the last three, four years for me, like Mm -hmm. probably the biggest game changer Mm -hmm. was that one. And it's been incredible how things start to change when you take the responsibility. Can you talk about the difference between taking fault and responsibility? Is there a difference there? Yeah. A lot of people get uncomfortable with responsibility because it means like it's my fault or I'm responsible. Like if I got raped and I'm responsible or if I, you know, my business partner ripped me off and I'm responsible, you know, Mm -hmm. but if you look at, if you take, if you start with the assumption that everything that happens to you, there's some aspect of what you did. I just watched a movie with Joaquin Phoenix recently. It's about a cartoonist named Callahan. And Callahan was a quadriplegic for a while. And he got, he was in a car and our guy was driving it. They were both drunk. And the guy totaled the car and Callahan became a quadriplegic. And for years he was blamed the other guy. And his AA sponsor in the movie makes him realize, well, you're the one that got in the car. You knew he was drunk. You know, you're the one that did it. Right. And so there's some aspect where you either knew something and didn't act on it, had an intuition, but didn't trust it because it was inconvenient. It was uh, going to be like a insult somebody, whatever it might be. So if you just look and say, if I did contribute to this being the way it is, what might be there. And when you look, you often find something almost mm-hmm. always. And the great thing is if I created it, I can uncreate it and recreate it differently in the future. So it's not about blame. It's not about you're a bad person. It's just simply called, if you don't want this to keep happening in your life, bad relationships, no money, sick all the time, not, you know, whatever, not having a job, then look and see what is it that I might be doing. Right. Right. Most people want to blame him, her, them, God. Because it's so much easier sure. than trying to do it yourself. Yeah. yeah. And the hard part is changing your behavior once you realize it. Hmm. 
because you've got these limiting beliefs, you have these fears, you have the conditioned programming that goes on you. It takes work. Yeah. Real work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you do what you always do, you're going to get what you've always gotten. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so much, so much of that kind of stuff is exactly what I've been trying to like put out to my audience recently is yeah. a lot of the taking responsibility. And there's so much great stuff about that. Real quick, let's touch on the E plus R equals O, sure. and then we'll head into the networking conversation. Sure. Okay. So everything you're currently experiencing in your life is an outcome of how you responded to something earlier. If you ate that cake last night, you might've put on a half an ounce of fat when you were sleeping last night. If you said something smart ass to somebody and it cost you a job, a consulting, a girlfriend, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you're the one that did that, you know? So it's to look at if I'm not getting what I want right now, what am I doing or have I done that's producing this outcome? So it's, there's an event that takes place. I give you a $2,000 bonus. You go to Vegas with your friends. A year later, your net worth is still the same. Mm-hmm. I give you a $2,000 bonus. Your response is to put it into an investment account. You buy some Apple stock with it or whatever. Your net worth is $2,200 higher now. You know, mm-hmm. so And the same thing is true. With everything that happens, you have a choice about how you respond to that event. And I often always say in my seminars, how many of you women would get upset if your husband forgot your birthday and all the hands go up? I say, well, what would you have to tell yourself? Well, someone, my husband doesn't love me. Well, how do you know that someone who loves you just forgot your birthday? You know, now you should be concerned, not upset with them. You know? yeah. And so, and then how about you giving little clues? Like my birthday's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a circle on the calendar. Yeah. Yeah. But see what happens, there's three responses you have any control over. One is your thoughts. So if you think my husband doesn't love me, you know, one of the things I teach couples is a set of principles. One of them is called, no matter what my partner's behavior, I'll assume it's, however troubling and disconcerting it is, I'll assume it's the behavior of someone who loves me. That changes everything in a relationship. Just mm. that one change of thought. Yeah. Now, the other thing you have control over is your physical, the things you do, your mm-hmm. actions, yeah. which includes what you say. And the third thing is your visualization, your images. So if I say, we're going to get up and dance, and some people go, oh, I'm going to want to do that. They're imaging being a lousy dancer, right? or they're remembering a time when they got teased as a kid because they couldn't dance or they fell down on the dance floor or whatever. And so we can change our images but by intentionally choosing to visualize something else. All fear is self-created by imagining something bad happening in the future. It hasn't happened yet. right? So I can start visualizing the worst scenario. Yeah, so now I can start visualizing the best scenario. Now it takes awareness called that's, oh, I'm doing that. That doesn't work. Right. I've got to do this instead. So Images, thoughts, and actions are the only three things we have any control over. And so when you can learn to change those and study the actions, the thoughts, and the beliefs and so forth that people that are successful have, and then use affirmations and self-hypnosis and all the kinds of things you can do to change that, your life radically changes. Hey, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. That's it for today. As you all know, this show is completely free. Our only ask is that if you found anything valuable in this episode or in any of the episodes that you've listened to, then share it with somebody else and leave us a quick rating review in whatever platform you're listening to right now. It would be super, super helpful for us. Uh, so that's it for today, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.